Father, we just come to you, and as you well know, we're living in times very similar to those in which Moses lived. And Lord, we're living in days when, when we're going to be faced with situations where we're going to have to take a stand. We're either going to stand for this world or we're going to stand for you. Lord, I just ask that you show us uh, those uh, situations and how they will look and how we should react as we look at this text today. Lord, let us learn about uh, these great heroes of faith who took a stand for you and let us, let us uh, follow their lead, Lord, in this world in which we live. Lord, we need your strength to do that. We need your power to do that. We need Jesus Christ to do that. And we just thank you for the relationship we have with him uh, through his blood, through his suffering on the cross, Lord. And, and we thank you for your word that you give us to teach us and to guide us and to direct us and to uh, grow us uh, in our faith, Lord, so that we can take stands in this world for our Lord and Savior. We just ask you to bless this study today. We ask you to do that uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you sports fans are well aware that the NBA uh, rebooted their season this past week. And uh, on the first day of the season, all of the players knelt for the national anthem. They were wearing uh, Black Lives Matter shirt and they, shirts, and they uh, knelt for the anthem. And uh, all of them except one, a young man named Jonathan Isaac. Uh, he's a forward for the Orlando Magic, and he decided to take a stand. And so he stood for the national anthem. He didn't wear the Black Lives Matter shirt, and he stood for the anthem. And, and afterwards, uh, of course, he was vilified for what he had done. Someone asked him, uh, don't you believe that black lives matter? And he said, certainly I believe black lives matter. I'm black, so I certainly believe that. But I don't believe that black lives matter uh, is the solution for the problems that we have in America today. The only solution for the problems that we have in America today is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, you talk about a young man taking a stand, he took a stand. And, and in a strange way, you would think he would be rewarded for that stand, and maybe in a strange way he was. Uh, in the first game back in the season, he tore his ACL. He just had surgery this past week. Uh, but I got to believe that maybe God had a purpose in allowing that to happen, to get him out of that fray, because he's the only one in that league taking a stand. Now, I'm not here today to talk about sports and about who takes a stand in the NBA or the MLB or any of those places, but I am here to talk about taking a stand for the Lord, because as we come to chapters uh, 1 and 2 of the book of Exodus, we're going to see some heroes of faith who did take a stand for the Lord. And we're going to learn some things about taking a stand uh, in this text. Now, as I said, we're going to do things a little bit differently here for a little while. Uh, as we go through uh, Exodus and maybe through the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, uh, uh, I think we're going to do it a little, I know we're going to do it a little bit differently. We're going to do an overview of these uh, books so we can kind of go through them very rapidly but they're very important to what we're going to get when we get back to the gospels and we get back to the doctrine that we get in Paul's letters they're very essential to understand you can't understand grace if you don't understand law you can't understand grace if you don't understand faith and it's and it's in the Old Testament we saw the 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 origins of faith in Genesis chapter 
15 or, or, or maybe a little bit earlier than that in the life of Abraham. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to see how faith and law came about. And then when we get to those uh, letters of Paul and when we get to the Gospels, we're going to understand a lot more of why, uh, about why Jesus had to die for us and, and uh, uh, why we need a Savior. So, so we're going to be doing an overview of the Pentateuch in the next few weeks and, and uh, uh, Exodus is part of the Pentateuch. Now, when I say the Pentateuch, I'm talking about the first five books of the Bible. Uh, uh, that, uh, the Jews call it the Torah. We call it the Pentateuch. Uh, most scholars believe that it was written by Moses. Early on, scholars didn't believe that because they said that there was no writing back in those days, that people didn't learn to write much later than that. But, but we, archaeologists, uh, long since have found all sorts of evidence that that there was writing taking place uh, in the ancient world long before Moses came on the scene. So, so that's not a problem. But what better man to write the first five books of the Bible than Moses? Because Moses was uh, the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, and so he was educated in the best schools in Egypt. So he certainly knew how to write, and he certainly knew how to read. And so he would, uh, there wouldn't have been a better man than than him to have written down the first five books of the Bible. Most people believe that he wrote it sometimes uh, towards the end of the Exodus, just before they went into the Promised Land, maybe a couple of years before they went into the Promised Land. Of course, Moses didn't go in, but that was maybe the last major task that he completed uh, before his death. Now, when we get to the story of Exodus, over 300 years have passed since uh, the Jews, the 12 tribes, went down into Goshen in Egypt, and uh, they grew into a great nation during that time. We're told in the book of Numbers that uh, at the time of the Exodus, there were over 600,000 men uh, of, the, of, of the age of fighting. So, so uh, they were at least 20 years old, 600,000 men that age. And it didn't include the older men either. It would be the man of fighting age probably between the ages of 20 and about 50. So, so all of the other men and the younger boys weren't included in that number. The women weren't included in that number. So it's estimated that there were over, three, or over 2 million, maybe upwards to 3 million people who participated in the Exodus. So, that's a, so they were really multiplying very fast during those 300 years. And, and uh, pick up with me now in, in the book of Exodus. So go with me to the book of Exodus. And let's pick up in verse number 7, the book of Exodus, verse number 7. It says, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplying, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. I mean, they were everywhere. There were millions of them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I wouldn't say he didn't know about Joseph, and he certainly didn't know Joseph because over 300 years had passed, but, but what this is saying here, he didn't really care about Joseph, and there was a reason for that. This king was none other than Anmos Ramesses. That's who most people believe he was. Uh, he was the first native king in several centuries in the land of Egypt. If you remember when we... Uh, introduced the story of Joseph. We talked about the Hyksos Empire. Uh, they were foreigners who had invaded Egypt, and they had 
put their own leaders in command. And so the pharaohs during Joseph's time were uh, not native to the land. They were foreigners. So the Egyptians eventually rebelled, and at the time that we come to the book of Exodus, they have placed, put in place their first native king in several centuries, and his name was Anmos Ramesses. And so he didn't care about Joseph. And here's the, what he sees happening. He sees these Jews multiplying like rabbits. And I mean, there's, there's millions of them. And they're actually coming to the point where they're going to exceed the population of the Egyptians. And he, his fear was that some army would come down uh, again and invade Egypt and that the Jews would join that army against the Egyptians. And so he wanted to do something about the population. Look at verse number 12. He says, but the more they afflicted them, I'm sorry, verse number 9, and he said to the people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we are. And so here's what they do. They rounded them all up, and they put them into labor camps. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Hitler did in World War II. He rounded up all the Jews, and he put them into labor camps. And his purpose was to reduce the population. Really deep in his mind, what he wanted to do was exterminate the Jews. Uh, I don't know that Pharaoh at this point wanted to exterminate the Jews, but he definitely wanted to reduce their population. So he rounds them up, and he puts them into labor camps in Ramesses and Python, and, and uh, he really puts them under hard labor. Now, when he makes that decision to do that, he virtually goes to war against the nation of Israel. And somebody in that war has a very great advantage. Who is it? It's not Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It's the Israelites, because who's on their side? God is on their side. And so then in verse number 12, it says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and they grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So Pharaoh ups the heat. Even, even more, he makes their labor even harder. And the harder he makes their labor, the more they multiply. And so Pharaoh does something. He has a plan. So he brings the, the head of the Hebrew midwives into his office or into his palace, uh, Shipra and Pua, and he tells them, here's what I want you to do. Tell the midwives when a male child is born, I want you to kill it. If it's a female child they can keep it. But if it's a male child, I want you to kill it. In doing so, he figured over time, very quickly, he would reduce the population of the Hebrews. Uh, now, that's a great story because in that story, we get a classic illustration of what we're to do when, the, when human authorities clash with the authority of God. Now, we know where to head to... to to find out exactly what we're, we're supposed to do when that happens. So go with me over to Romans. You're all familiar with this passage. You're hearing this passage talked about a lot in the days in which we live now. And, and so it's pertinent to what we're, we're going through here in the 21st century. Go with me to Romans chapter 13. And look down at verse number 1. Romans chapter 13. Verse number one. Listen to what Paul says. He says, let every soul. Now, by every soul, what did he mean? 
He meant every soul. That's all of us. Every person on this earth. Let every soul and every generation, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority. How many authorities? No authorities. That means every authority. uh, There is no authority except from God. Every authority, every governor, every king, every leader, every mayor, they are given their power by God. Remember when Jesus was facing Pilate, remember what he told him? He said, you would have no authority unless it was given to you by God. So even a man as evil as Pilate got his authority from God. So whether you like a politician or not, he's in the place or she's in the place they're in because God has allowed them to be there. And you are subject, you and I are subject to that authority. Every soul is subject to that authority. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. They're appointed by God whether we like them or whether we don't like them. So if you don't like Donald Trump, you're still to submit to the authority of Donald Trump because Donald Trump has been given that position by God. And if Joe Biden comes into office uh, in, in, uh, in January, then we're to submit to him because his authority will be, have been given to him by God. Therefore, look, listen to what it says. It's kind of scary here. Uh, if you want to rebel against authorities, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. Now, when you see these people riding in the streets of some of our major cities today, let me tell you what they're doing. They're resisting authority, and they're bringing judgment upon themselves. You don't have to worry about them getting judged. They're going to be judged. They're bringing judgment upon themselves by their very actions. So so that's the rule. It's as plain and simple as it can get. We're to submit to every authority, every one of us, whether we like them or whether we don't like them. I mean, Pharaoh probably wasn't that likable of a guy, but they were to submit to him. Herod wasn't that likable of a guy, but, but Paul says, hey, you're to submit to him. And so, so we're to submit to every authority. Now, there is a major exception to that rule, and we get that from the context of Scripture, and I'm not going to go through all the examples. But here's the exception. Whenever obeying authorities, local authorities or governmental authorities, uh, causes us to disobey God, then we're not to obey that authority. We're to obey God. That can't be any clearer than that. And so, it, so if, if, if the government's telling us to do something that causes us to disobey our Lord, then we're not to do it. What are we to do? We're to take a stand. We're to take a stand for God. Now, I got to tell you, we're in times now where you and I as Christians, if you're a Christian, you're going to be, you know, if you're not a Christian, you just go on and do what the world does. But if you're a Christian, you're going to be forced at times to, 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 to either obey worldly authorities or to obey God. And I believe that's what this young man uh, was doing, Jonathan Isaac, when he made his stand. He wasn't going to bow before the altar of, of black life matters. He took his stand. And I think we're going to be, as 
as, as individuals and as a church, we're going to be forced to take stands in the times in which we live. Now, that rule is pretty simple to apply in most cases, but sometimes you get into some gray areas and it gets really difficult as, uh, to determine exactly what you're supposed to do. Now, what do you do when you're in that situation? You seek God. You find out what God wants you to do, and whatever God wants you to do, that's what you do. I, let's take our church, for example. We're told by the governor of Louisiana that we're to wear masks. Now, I, I think it's okay once you're in your place and you're six feet away from people who aren't part of your family to take your mask off, and that's what most of you are doing now. So, so we're forced to, we're told to wear a mask, we're told to wash our hands, hopefully you wash your hands anyway. Uh, we're, we're, we're supposed to use hand sanitizer, we're supposed to keep a distance of six feet from each other, we're told to do that by the governor. Now let me ask you a question. Does that violate or cause you, any of those things cause you to be disobedient to God? No, no, they don't. So, so you can't go out as a Christian and say, I'm not going to wear a mask because I'm a Christian. And I hear Christians saying that. I have my rights. Really, what is that? That's nothing more than pride. I'm going I'm to exercise my rights. And so you got to be really, really careful that you don't cross that line from, from claiming that you're obeying God to that line on the other side where you're just exercising your pride. It's a big difference. Now, when the governor says you can't have church, what do you do? That's kind of, to me, a gray area. When we were told we couldn't have church and they said it was going to be a couple of weeks, uh, we did webcast. We started our webcast. At the time, actually, what, what I think wasn't necessarily a good order worked out good for us because now we've got a webcast every week. So, so, and I think a lot of churches now have webcasts that didn't have webcasts before. But if we're told in the near future that we're to shut this church down and go back to nothing but webcast, that's going to be a gray area for me. That's going to be a gray area for me. And, and I, would have to, I, would, I, I would have to pray about that a lot before I would shut this church back down. Now, you know, you might not want to come and you might want to watch it on webcast if you're afraid, but, and I understand that, but, but I, I might have a hard time shutting it down. And, and that's what's happening right now in California. They've been told to shut their churches down and and a lot of them have shut their churches down but a lot of pastors are standing up and they're saying this is where it's crossed the line this is where it's causing us to be disobedient to the Lord because the Lord has called us to proclaim the gospel and we're being told we can't proclaim the gospel the Lord has call, uh, called us to minister to the poor to minister to the hurting and we can't minister to the poor and we can't minister to the hurting if our churches are closed and so some of these pastors are actually standing up and they have opened their doors and their churches are full. Uh, I, I know you probably have heard what's going on with uh, Grace Community Church in California and John MacArthur. Uh, he's done that very thing. He's opened his doors and, and they're full and people are coming. And now the governor is threatening to throw him in jail, to fine him $1,000 a day, to cut their power and cut their water off. It's going to be interesting to see what is going to happen. He's an 85, I mean, 81 year old man. You know what? That would really do be good for Christendom if they threw him in the jail. Can you imagine them throwing an 81 year old man in jail because he's trying to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who's going to look stupid in that situation? It's not going to be John MacArthur. I got to say this. I'm not a big John MacArthur fan. I, I, he's a he's a, the king of hyper dispensationalists. 
Uh, he's, a, he's the king of cessationists, and I disagree with those theologies, so I wouldn't recommend his commentaries, but I highly recommend his guts. He's got a lot of guts, and that's what we need in this age in which we live. We need guts. Listen, we're faced every minute of every day with choices where we either stand for this world or we stand for Christ. And we need guts to do that. We need guts like this man has. And that's what these midwives had. They had guts. And when Pharaoh said, hey, kill the babies, they said they weren't going to kill the babies because they knew that killing those ba- in killing those babies, they were disobeying God. And so they didn't kill those babies. And, and the population began to grow. And Pharaoh called them in and said, uh, why haven't you been killing the babies? And they said, hey, the, women, the Hebrew women are lively. They, they, they really have their kids quick. We get a call and they tell us to come in there to, to, to deliver the baby and they, the baby's already been born. So we can't do anything about it. Of course, they were lying. But they were taking a stand for the Lord. They were taking a stand. They were, they were courageous in taking that stand because they could have lost their lives. And look at how God rewarded them. Go back to the book of Exodus now. And look in chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1. And jump down to verse 21. And it says, And so it was, because the midwives feared God and took a stand, that he provided household for them. You know why most midwives were midwives? Because they couldn't have children of their own. And so they wanted to be there and help other women have their children. Well, all of these midwives who, who, who took a stand and, and wouldn't kill that male baby, God rewarded them. He gave them households of their own. He opened their wombs and they had children and they had babies. And, and uh, Pharaoh doesn't know what to do at this point. The Egyptians, I mean, the Hebrews are multiplying faster than ever now. And they're definitely a threat to Egypt. And so he doesn't know what to do. So he implements his final solution, much like Hitler. His final solution was this. Every Hebrew family who had a male child was to throw that child into the Nile and drown that baby. And if they didn't comply to that order, if they didn't comply, then they would be thrown into the Nile too, and all their other children would be thrown into the Nile with them. And so they were put in a terrible predicament. Do they preserve their families, or do they throw that child in the Nile? Do they obey Pharaoh, or do they obey the Lord? Well, that brings us to, to chapter number two. And as we come to chapter number two, a few years have passed, and Pharaoh's order is still uh, in place. And we head to a different setting now. We go to one of these little shanty towns in, in, uh, in, in, near Cairo, and we come to a little family, and, and it's a Levite family. Uh, the husband's name is Amram, and the wife's name is Jochebed. And they have a young daughter, and the daughter's name is Miriam. And Jochebed conceived, and she bore a son. And so she had a dilemma when, she, when, when the child was born. Clearly, she doesn't want to obey the, the Pharaoh's order. She doesn't want to throw the child into the Nile River, but she doesn't want the whole family being thrown in the Nile River and drowning. And so, so uh, she has a choice. And I think more than likely, she would have thrown the baby into the Nile, except 
some, there was something special about this baby. We're told uh, in the text that it was a beautiful boy. Now, what baby isn't beautiful? I mean, that, that doesn't really do much for us. Tell us much, does it? Well, Stephen tells us over in the book of Acts, uh, in chapter number 7, that the, the baby was special in the sight of God. I, I have no doubt when Moses was born that there was something special about him that Amron and Jochebed saw in their son. Not just that he was a beautiful baby, because all babies are beautiful. That word there means something more than that. He was like a glowing baby. He, he, he had the presence of God all over him. You could, I, I believe maybe they could actually see, at a time anyway, the Shekinah glory of God over Moses. And here was the Hebrews, and they were crying out for a deliverer, and this beautiful child with a pre, who has the presence of God in his face, you can see the presence of God in his face, is born. And what do they assume at this point? They assume that more than likely he is the deliverer of Israel, and they were exactly right about that. So she makes the decision at that point, I'm not going to kill my child. I'm not going to throw my child until the Nile River. And so uh, she, she doesn't do that. And, but after three months pass, it's, he's making a lot of noise. Uh, he's wanting to go outside. They've got to go to the, to the labor camps, and what are they going to do with him when they're gone? And so, so there's, there's real problems now. And so she realizes that she's going to have to do something. And she doesn't want her family to die, so what she does, she builds a little ark. It's a, you know, you see it in the movies, it's a little basket. But she builds a little ark, and she puts him on the Nile River. And she has Miriam follow him at a distance to see what happens to him. And we all know the story, but let's pick it up in verse number 5 of chapter 2. And, and it just so happened that... Uh, here's little Moses floating down the Nile, and Miriam's following a little ways at a distance, and it just so happens then the daughter of Pharaoh decided she was going to take a bath in the river. I, mean, I think maybe somebody said an angel pinched her in the rear or something, and, and she got up and said, I need to take a bath. I, maybe not in the rear, maybe in the back of the arm or something. But anyway, she, she, uh, she decides to take a bath, and she goes down to the river, and her maidens walked along the riverside, and when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her, her maid to get it, to see what was in it. And she opened it up, and she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And so she had compassion on him. How can you not have compassion on a little baby? So she opens the, the basket up, and there's the baby. And she says, oh, look, this is one of the Hebrew children. I think I'll keep him. And, and uh, then here's Miriam. Miriam's off at a distance, just a small distance, a short distance away, and she sees what happens. And she's got a choice now. She can run back home and she can tell mom, Jacobet, and Amram what happened. Hey, he's in good hands. You ain't going to believe it. Pharaoh's daughter's got him. You know he's going to be in good shape from there. And, and so she's got a choice, and she can leave it at that. Or she can go and she can risk her life. Here she is, a Hebrew slave. And she can go and she can go and face Pharaoh's daughter and, and, and speak to her and maybe make something good happen. And she takes a stand. Look at what happens. It says, uh, and, 
then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women and she, that she may nurse the child for you? And, hey, I know just the woman to do it. Uh, I know just the lady. And so Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, and the mother came to the palace, and, and uh, she got the job, and she was paid. She was paid to take care of her own child. Who gets paid to take care of their own child? I mean, what is, is God not something? He gives her a job. Now, now they, the slaves didn't have jobs, so they didn't have any money. She couldn't buy anything. She couldn't do anything. But now she not only... Is she not doing slave work in the labor camp anymore? She's in Pharaoh's palace, and she's taking care of her own child, and she's getting paid for it. That is just like God. She's rewarded because she took a stand for God. And uh, in the very worst of circumstances, when you take a stand for God, God will honor that stand that you take, and he will reward you for that stand. Now, look at the position that Jochebed is in now. She's going to get to raise her own son during those formative years, the years that psychologists say, uh, the years uh, one year to five years, when a child's personality and character are developed, a personality and character that they will keep for the rest of their lives. And so, so she's given that chance to raise her child during those formative years and I know she took advantage of every minute she had and 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 she told him about the Lord Jehovah she told him about Abraham Isaac and Jacob she told him about uh, the Abrahamic covenant and I believe at some point in those early years she told him you are the deliverer of Israel God has sent you to deliver Israel out of slavery and take them, take us into the promised land. So she had great influence on her child. But no doubt Pharaoh's daughter had great influence on Moses too. Uh, over in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, it says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So here's Moses and he's growing up. And he's got two worldviews. He's got the godly Hebrew worldview that he's being taught by Jochebed. And he's got the pagan Egyptian worldview, a humanistic worldview, along with those pagan gods. Uh, he's, he's given that worldview uh, in these schools where he's being educated, where Pharaoh's daughter has sent him. So he's got a choice. As he grows older, he has a choice to make. And that's a choice we all have to make. Are we going to follow after this world, or are we going to follow after God? It's a choice to take a stand. Like I said, it's a choice we take all the time. We're forced to take all the time. And that's to choose to serve God or to choose to live for this world. And Moses had that choice. And it had to be a complicated choice because you, you look at all of the luxury that he was living in and all the good things of life. I mean, he was living the good life as, if, as, from a secular standpoint. He was definitely blessed. 
And, and he had everything any man would ever want, the finest chariots, the finest horses, the finest home, uh, the finest food, the finest wine, the finest everything. He had anything he wanted was his. And he looked, and there on the, on the other side of the, the fence, there were the Hebrew slaves who had nothing, nothing but misery. And he had a choice. He could take a stand for God like his mom did. And his sister did. Or he could stand for this world. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And so he takes his stand. He takes his stand and he says I've been chosen to deliver the Egyptian. I mean the Hebrew people out of slavery and take them to the promised land and I'm going to do it. And, and we pick that story up in verse number 11 of chapter 2. Listen to what he said. He said, what it says, it says, Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, he's 40 years old at this point, that he went out to his brethren. He made his choice. He said, I'm going to take a stand and I'm going I'm to live for God. And I'm going to be part of the Hebrew nation and not part of the Egyptian nation. And that he went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And they beat him all the time. Something he had probably seen all his life. And it made him sick all his life. But this time he says, I'm going to take a stand. And he looked this way. And he looked that way. He looked to the left. And he looked to the right. And he didn't see anybody. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill that Egyptian for beating that Hebrew. I mean, M Moses was a weightlifter. I'm sure he was part of the, you know, he had his own gym. I mean, he was a strong guy. Uh, and and uh, so he, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. Now, what was Moses' mistake? Same mistake we often make. We look to the left, we look to the right, we look ahead. We don't see anybody. I can do what I want to do right now. Which way should have you looked up? Look, he should have looked up. He should have been looking up. And he should have said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, I didn't want him to kill this Egyptian soldier. That wasn't God's plan for the deliverance. And here was Moses. I mean, he had been raised a man's man. He had been raised... Uh, with all sorts of uh, worldly wisdom. And the wisdom of the world is to take matters into your own hand. God helps those who help themselves. That was kind of his philosophy. That's not in the Bible, by the way. It's nowhere in the Bible. God helps those who follow God. And he helps us by the power of God. Those who get their direction from God. That's who God helps. And so what Moses should have done is been seeking the direction of God. Now, now, this is going to cost him. It's going to cost him 40 years on the backside of the Midian Desert. Uh, it, 40 tough years. And so, so uh, he made a big mistake here by not listening to the Lord and, and so, or not seeking the Lord's wisdom. So look at what happens in verse number 13. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And, he, and now he's got, he's 
picturing himself, I'm the deliverer of Israel, and he's got, this, he's got his own plans now, and hey, we're going to get this thing on, I'm going to get you guys, and I'm going to deliver you on out of here. Uh, we're going to go to the promised land. And uh, he's thinking everybody's on with that plan. Uh, but they're not. Here were two, behold, two Hebrew uh, men were fighting, and he said to one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion, your own brother, your Hebrew brother? Then, he, then the Hebrews said to him, who made you a prince and judge over us? Now, you talk about busting somebody's balloon. Uh, I mean, his prideful balloon was burst at that very moment. He says, he says, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I've been found out. Uh, so they know about my murderous uh, activity. So Moses feared and said, surely the thing is known. And then when Pharaoh heard the matter, here's what Pharaoh said. Remember, this is the Pharaoh and his, uh, his daughter who's raised Moses. And I don't know that he ever really liked Moses, never really accepted Moses. Some say he did. I mean, that's all a conjecture. Uh, some say that he was, you know, going to be the next Pharaoh. That's conjecture. Maybe he was. But I have a hunch that this Pharaoh really didn't want an Egyptian. They had had, uh, really didn't want a Hebrew as Pharaoh. They had had foreign Pharaohs, and he didn't want that. And so when he hears that Moses has killed somebody, he knows that Moses has made his choice. Moses has made his choice not to be an Egyptian. He's made his choice to be a Hebrew. And so he set out to kill him. And Moses fled as fast as he could. It reminds me of Elijah. Elijah fleeing as fast as he could from the death threats of Jezebel. Moses ran as hard as he could, as fast as he could, all the way down to the Media Desert and to Mount Horeb. That's exactly where Elijah fled to, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And so he flees all the way down there, and, he, and, and uh, it, says, it says, he Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. He sat down by a well, and he felt despised, and rejected. I mean, he was, here he was in the middle of a desert. He had left everything to take a stand for God. And where did it get him? At a well, sitting by a well, all the way down at Mount Horeb in the Midian Desert. Some reward, right, for taking a stand. Moses made a mistake because he took a stand that God didn't call him to take. Not yet. He's going to take that stand later on. But good things happen to Moses while he's down there in Midian. While he's sitting there at the well, there's the seven daughters of Jethro come to the well to get water and to water their flocks. And there were some shepherds there, and they began to harass those women. And Moses came, and he, he defended those women, and he protected those women. And the women went back to their father, Jethro, and they said, Hey, we met this Egyptian, and, and uh, he saved our lives, or he at least uh, protected us from the harassment of these shepherds. And, and Jethro said, man, you ain't going to find a man like that among the Midianites. Go grab him and bring him to dinner. One of you can marry him. And so they grabbed him, and they brought him back to dinner, and sure enough, one of them did marry him, a, 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 the girl named Zipporah. And he had a son, and the name of his son 
was Gershom. And Gershom means a stranger in a foreign land. So that was the state of Moses as, as we leave the scene now. We go back to Egypt and we finish up chapter number 2. It says in the last part of chapter number 2, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned even more because of their bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. So here was God, and he, he said to the angels, he said, Shucks, I forgot all about those Israelites. There, didn't, didn't, go go get, check the records. Didn't I promise I was going to take care of them somewhere in the past? Uh, but he has his senior moment, and he forgets all about them. And, and uh, here they are uh, squandering in poverty down in Egypt. And No, that's not what that means. When it says he remembered it, that's what we theologians call an anthropomorphism. That's where we take and we put finite human terms and assign those to an infinite God so that maybe we can understand it more. But God, didn't for, ever, ne, God has never forgotten the Israelites. God knew about the Israelites before there was ever an Israelite. Before Abraham was even born, he chose Abraham before the foundation of the world to be the great father of the faith that he is. He chose Jacob and he chose Isaac and, and he chose these people that are down here in Egypt. So he had done, it was anything uh, uh, but forget them. His mind was on them. His eye was on them. Uh, he loved them. They were the apple of his eye. He loved them more than anything else in the world. So he was watching every move they made. He was just waiting for them to act, to reach the point that they knew that they didn't want to be in Egypt anymore. And he brought them to that point, and they groaned. And in verse number 25, and God looked, up, uh, looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. That means God was about to act. God was going to send them a deliverer. And when we get to chapter 3, that's exactly what's going to happen. God is going to send them a deliverer, and that deliverer is none other than the man Moses. You know, in this section of Scripture, in these first five, ten uh, chapters of, of uh, the book of Exodus, we get one of the most beautiful types of Jesus Christ that we get anywhere in Scripture. Because you just, just look at the story of Moses here. Moses, were, he was a man who, who forsook all the glories and pleasures of Egypt in order to come to deliver the Hebrews. That day when he went out there and he murdered that man, that's what he was doing. He thought it was what he thought he was doing. He had come to deliver the Hebrews, Hebrews to deliver them from their bondage and take them to the promised land. But the first time that he came, they rejected him as their deliverer. They didn't want him as their deliverer. Who, is, who are you that you've made yourself prince over us? And then he goes to a faraway land, and he takes for himself a Gentile bride. And then later on, we're going to see in the future chapters of Genesis that he goes back to the land of Egypt to deliver the nation of Israel. And this time, by the Spirit of God, they accept him as their deliverer. And sure enough, he takes them out of bondage and he delivers them into the promised land. I, that's one of the beautiful things about studying Scripture. 
These types of Jesus Christ are given to us throughout the Old Testament. There's all sorts of clues about who Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. And, and this is no exception. This is a great picture of what Christ has done for us, isn't it? I mean, isn't that what he's done? Didn't he leave all the glories and pleasures of heaven to come to this earth to deliver his own people? He came into his own, we're told in the book of John, the first chapter, he came into his own, but his own received him not. Not only did they not receive him, they nailed him to a cross. And then he went to a far, far away land to do what? To take for himself a Gentile bride. And one day, he's coming back with that bride, and he's going to deliver the Jews. The book of Isaiah in, in chapter 59 says this. He says, uh, out of Zion, a, out of the heavenly Zion, a deliverer will come again to Israel, one much greater than Moses. And who's that, who is that? That's none other than Jesus Christ. When's he going to come? Well, we're told in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30, alas, for the day is great. We're nearing that day right now, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. What's the time of Jacob's trouble? It's the great tribulation. Let me tell you what, the great tribulation is on the horizon right now. If you're here and you see the great, tribul you see the great tribulation begin, and I'm not here, I want you to remember that I got raptured out of here, or God took me out of here, but by death before that time because there, there's not going to be any believers that at the time of the great tribulation when the great tribulation begins that are here when when it does begin now there will be believers that be, people who become believers during the great tribulation but you remember that when we're all, when if you're not saved and we're all the rest most of these people are gone and you're sitting here by yourself uh you remember that 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 this was given to us not just by the pastor, but in the word of God. Alas, for the great day, for the day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But Jacob shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke from your neck, the bondage, and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners will no more enslave you, but you shall serve the Lord your God. And the only reason they're going to be able to do that is because the Spirit of God will be upon them. And the Lord will, when the Deliverer comes, they're going to be revived. As we're told in Zechariah 12, 10, let me read that to you. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me in whom they've pierced with nails. And yes, they will mourn for him uh, as one mourns for their only for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. But what age are we living in right now? Let me tell you the age we're living in now. We're living at the very end of what Paul refers to as the church age. It's about to end. It's about to end. It's, uh, the end is on the horizon. It might be this year. It might be the, the, uh, uh, 10 years from now. But, hey, I wouldn't look much past that. It is on the horizon. And right now, Jesus is taking a bride for himself. And the reason we can be his bride is that he took a stand for us. He took a stand for us. He came to this world and he was rejected by this world. And he took a stand. And because he took a stand, he was crucified. 
and his body was broken and his blood shed so that all our sins could be forgiven. All our sins, past, present, and future. Now let me ask you this. If he would do that for me, don't you think I ought to have the guts when the time comes to take a stand for him? Don't you think I ought to love him enough to take a stand for him? Let me tell you what, you better love him enough to take a stand for him. Because he says over in Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, whoever stands for me, I will stand for him before my father. Whoever denies me, I will deny him before my father. It's time church it's time we take some stands you think about it you think about it in every area of your life when you're faced with that decision to choose this world or choose Christ have the guts to choose Christ let's go to the Lord in prayer Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the opportunities you give us in this life to serve you, to take stands for you. Lord, those stands are clearly seen now by the situations where we take those stands or need to take those stands. Lord, there's no doubt when they we're confronted with those situations. And Lord, I just ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we can only do that by your Spirit, I ask that we choose to stand for you in every area of our life, in the public, Lord, in private situations, in everything we do, help us to choose to stand for you because you stood for us, Lord. You stood for us and you hung there for us so that we could have eternal life because of our, our sins have been forgiven through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.